Hi, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Bill Walsh is Lieutenant with the Voorhees Police Department in New Jersey. We chat about his work as their health and wellness coordinator, integrating police families into a comprehensive program geared towards officer wellness and resiliency. Welcome to Reducing Crime, episode 29. The guest theme tune from the previous episode was Hawaii Five O. Look, if you didn't know that one, then your youth is showing. This time around, we have a true classic, perhaps the classic, a police drama that had 146 episodes from 1981 to 1987, a memorable and understated theme tune that you just heard, and over its seven seasons, the show garnered an incredible 98 Emmy Award nominations. This series was the pioneer of the gritty urban realism that inspired NYPD Blue, Breaking Bad, and of course, The Wire. What made this show so memorable was that it blended the multicultural on and off duty dramas of what the producers described as 13 characters living through a Gordian knot of personal and professional relationships. That seemed so appropriate because how police officers manage those stresses of a complex work life bleeding through to their home life and family, is the subject of my chat this month with Bill Walsh. Lieutenant Bill Walsh is the Patrol Bureau Commander and Health and Wellness Coordinator with the Voorhees Police Department in New Jersey. His work in areas of officer wellness programs, police family wellness and early intervention systems has been published and presented through various organisations, and he serves as a consultant to the IACP, that's the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and the US Department of Justice's CRITEC. Bill holds a master's degree in administrative science and is currently working towards a second master's degree in clinical mental health counselling. In 2019, he is named as one of the IACP's 40 Under 40. This award recognises 40 law enforcement professionals under the age of 40 from around the world that demonstrate leadership and exemplify commitment to their profession. His works led to the development and implementation of supervisory and agency health and wellness programs that include automatic one-on-one wellness visits with a board-certified police psychologist, family wellness seminars and programming, financial wellness, and a culturally competent employee assistance program. You join us just as we're settling into a socially distant brunch. Well, it was lunch for him and it was brunch for me on a lovely autumn afternoon at a brew pub in the town where he works and lives. Yeah, I should get out your way, shouldn't I? Thank you. Been doing this long enough, I know when to stop. Good man. Cheers. There's lemons and uh, sweetener. Lemons. Lemons in tea. Such an American invention. (laughs) Cheers, thanks, man. Oh my god. Have you eaten here before? I have, it's good. Anything that's not good? Um, the fish and chips are good, but obviously you probably wouldn't, you probably have had much better. (laughs) Everybody thinks every British person is a connoisseur of fish and chips. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. Um, I mean, we are, it's true, but I'm trying to be healthy because COVID-19 has, you know, my alcohol intake has gone up, <laughs> attempts at fitness have kind of slided, you know, no gyms have been open, I haven't been going to any yoga, I've been doing stuff at home, but the alcohol intake has definitely increased. Agreed, then, like, same here. It's been a lot of comfort food, right? <laughs> yeah. COVID-19 equates to comfort food. Helps you relax. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm looking at all this kind of stuff and thinking, yeah, I can have the fried chicken sandwich for breakfast. Yes. I can do that. 
with a side of nachos. Well, they put green onion and pepper on it. It's best like at least a whole serving of vegetables right there on the nachos, right? It's like a salad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what strikes me about this whole kind of officer wellness side is how quickly it came to the fore out of nowhere. I mean, it, it seemed to have been the the Obama presidential commission really started highlighting it and then it became just something that we were talking about, I think worldwide, really. Yeah, I mean, when I first started doing the research on it, when I was going for my master's, I started exploring suicides in policing because I was impacted by two of them, personally, friends of mine, uh, within a month of each other. And when I started doing the research, I couldn't believe how big of an issue it was. Two police officers? Mm -hmm. Within a month. Really? One had retired two weeks prior to his suicide, and the other one was still an active police officer. One was older, one was, uh, the active officer was 30 years old, worked with him, and the other one I uh, considered a family friend, an uncle, essentially. So that kind of made me start shifting my research into police suicides. And that was back in 09, 2010, around there. And back then we didn't, as a profession, I don't think we really even recognized the fact that suicides were an issue. And it wasn't something we really talked about. I always say it's like a dark family secret. Well, and also policing's, I mean, very much in your family, isn't it? It is, yeah. So my dad's a police chief in a municipality near here. My uncle just got sworn in as police chief in another municipality near here. And then here I am in uh, Voorhees. So. Yeah, it's a, definitely a family tradition. So I saw it from the lens of being a kid of a police officer and how scary that could be. And now I see it as a police officer and as a father, how scary you know it can be, possibly not going home and things like that, but all the things that you can bring home with you. It's interesting to see the shift now is more towards, all right, we know that we have, there's a problem. We're finally recognizing there's a problem and let's try and start putting things in place to prevent it more seriously and actually use research as we do those things and actually use partnerships and collaboration instead of just the traditional police response, which is let's make uh, officer so-and-so the mental health expert now and you know he's going to run this program or she's going to run this program. Now we're actually collaborating partnerships with professionals. Yeah, read this one article in Police Chief, you are now the expert and you're now teaching it at the academy. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that how we make experts Absolutely. in policing now? Absolutely. Yep. And it feels like the last six months, the last year, it's, it seems to have got so much worse. It has frontline workers in general, especially you know, from my experience as a police officer that I've seen, um, the pandemic and how that's impacted policing and how it's impacted our safety and our wellness and, and the fears that we had about you know, going to work, we're confronting violent individuals. Now the fears we have going to work is, am I gonna get sick? But worse, am I gonna bring something home to my family and get them sick? Policing doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. And before when you go to work, you worry about your vest and that was it. Uh, and neither does the aviation industry, it's apparently. Not, uh, yeah, we're right at PHL's flight path here, I think. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, you'd always worry about putting your vest on and making sure you had your right equipment. And then it became, all right, do I have my vest? Do I have my body camera? And then this year it became, do I have my vest? Do I have my body camera? Do I have my N95 or P100 mask with me? And it was kind of something where we're used to seeing our threats. And this one's one we didn't see. And then we had the, uh, the civil unrest shortly thereafter. It was like one thing after another compounding and impacting officers and their families too. The civil unrest after the horrific death of George Floyd was, I think, something that was really interesting because that seemed to be something that touched every police department. Now, don't take us the wrong way, but you're in a police department in a really nice town. I mean, it's not like a major war zone in, in any shape or form, but it seemed that not necessarily the unrest but certainly the change in the public's attitude towards policing seems to have affected every department. I mean, I'm still talking to a lot of cops and I'm doing ride-alongs in Philadelphia and other places. And that seems to have been pervasive. It's the change in public attitude and how they feel about policing and how they talk about policing seems to be affecting a lot of officers. 
Yeah, we're blessed. The community we work in is very supportive of our police department. Um, but but still, you can't escape social media. And there's still going to be very vocal people out there who, who want reform, and a lot of agencies do need reform. Um, our agency, we're blessed because we have a very good agency with good policies and procedures and really great officers. But these incidents, they go across the board. They're, they spread worldwide, and now you're dealing with officers who are having family members posting things on social media that are derogatory towards our profession or uh, bringing things up, training they don't understand, and it, it shifted almost overnight. Yeah, what strikes me about it, that change in tone has become much more acceptable. So it's like this, uh, what political scientists call an Overton window, that window of what is reasonable to discuss has moved in terms of policing and now people can be much more openly vitriolic about policing and much more critical of policing and in some cases it's justified. Um, I don't think anybody sensible in policing is going to deny that in the slightest but a lot of the time it's uninformed or unrealistic but then to go home to that and to go onto social media or Facebook and see family members and people that you meet for barbecues and Thanksgiving posting that kind of stuff I can't imagine how that makes many officers feel. No, and a lot of the sentiment that I heard and that you know I even experienced personally was, I, I understand where you're coming from. I understand your frustrations with policing, but why haven't you picked up the phone and called me and had a conversation with me to, to discuss some of the things agencies are doing or some of the things that do work or work for us here before you post these things or, or help, help me help you understand it a little more from the lens of a police officer before you post these things. You know, I agree people have an absolute right to be frustrated, angry, demand change, but some of the things, as, as you uh, put it perfectly, it just was vile, some of the stuff people were posting. And it's I was out on a ride along the other night, you know, we pulled up and chatting some cops, and one officer was just telling me, you know, he, he was out the other day, and... You're good. <laughs> <laughs> at, at some point, we've got a band coming past, right? There's got to be a marching, so. marching band, band coming down yeah. the street, yeah. Yep. Um, and, and he was saying... You know, a, a small child, maybe four or five years old, because this is North Philadelphia, right? A small black kid came up to him and said, are you going to shoot me? And that just got to him. That absolutely just got to him. That was the, one of the first things that he ended up talking about. And he'd been carrying that around, that, you know, some idiot cop does something truly awful a thousand miles away, and the repercussions flow down to that small child being informed, I hope drastically incorrectly and nowhere near accurately that this police officer instead of being somebody who would help this little girl and help this child in, in a time of crisis is somebody who would try and kill her. That's a very drastic example of it but you know we've had instances and I've been through this personally where we're just in line getting coffee or getting a sandwich for lunch and we're in uniform working and there'll be a kid in front of us with their parent and the parent will say you better behave or the police officer is going to take you away. And it's not something people should be telling their kids. We, we are there to help them. And it's frustrating when an officer does leave their family to go protect strangers and serve strangers for their shift that day. And that seems to be a sentiment that's pervasive. Uh, but I always remind officers, those are the people you're hearing from. There's plenty of other people out there who are very supportive of you. So it really is about reframing things. We definitely shouldn't be complacent. No. Uh, there's always work to be done. Always. But I certainly feel and perceive an increase in stress and a lack of morale. And so the, the work that you've been doing is really trying to help officers with that. So, I mean, this seems really timely at the moment because society generally is down in the dumps. I mean, 2020 has just been a shit year. I mean, I'm just waiting for the meteor strike just to cap the whole thing off nicely, right? No. <laughs> 
But in policing, it's been particularly bad. I've never known morale as low as it is. Yeah, and you hear more officers talking about retiring. You even hear officers talking about, well, let me go find something else to do, you know, even if they're not eligible to retire. You know, we've been talking for years now about recruiting and retention being a crisis in law enforcement before any of this even happened. Recruiting is absolutely getting destroyed right now. I mean, people are, are they're either signing up for the test and not showing up, or they're going for the test and then deciding, nah, I don't want to do this and backing out of the process. So even if we can recruit people, they're a new generation. When did you join policing? 2003. 2003. And I joined in the 80s, back in the Neolithic era. <laughs> and there was no sense of looking after officers' mental health. There was no discussion of mental health. You had a British stiff upper lip, you dealt with whatever you saw, and you know, as in anybody in policing, and I worked at Inner East London, you see horrific stuff, you deal with horrific stuff. One of the first cases I worked on an assignment to a detective's office was an infanticide of a baby. And you just see all this kind of stuff, and then there's no dealing with it. And, then there, and, and there was no expectation, you just went home and you came back the next day. And it really wasn't deemed something that you really talked about unless you hang around with a bunch of the guys and you went to the pub. Right. And, you know, I think there was a sense that that was your release. But kind of working, working through stuff with copious amounts of alcohol was clearly, for some people, <laughs> not the best way forward. Absolutely. Yeah. And that seems to have been pervasive until fairly recently. Yeah, fairly recently, absolutely. When I, as I said, I started in 2003, that was still the culture. Uh, we still had choir practice, which, you know, for people who aren't familiar with the term, was drinking after work together as a squad. And we did discuss a lot of the things we saw during that particular tour of duty or, you know, maybe things in the past that were bothering us might come up in conversation. Uh, we might talk about our, our first, our worst, our most recent events. But it wasn't doing anything good because we're surrounding around a depressant, alcohol, and we're talking about negative feelings. Well, it, we're talking about negative stuff, but we're not talking about our feelings. No, it's true. It's a good way to put it. We don't really talk about our, we didn't talk about our feelings. We just talked about the negative event. Yeah. <laughs> and often it would be kind of gory and we would talk about that, but we would never, we never talk about how it affected us. No, or how it affected those around us, you know, or how it affected whether or not we were even going to tell those around us. And we never had mechanisms for dealing with that in any way, shape or form. I mean, you never left any kind of hint that you had any psychological problems. That was like a ticket to nowhere. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't do that. I mean, your interaction with a psychologist was to get hired. And it was adversarial. It was something where you go in there, you're nervous. You want to make sure you get the job because it's a job, you're, you know, for whatever reason, you're, you really want that job. And you have to pass a psychological. Most agencies at least have that. You're pretty much told that's the only time you should be in front of them. You know, try to avoid them at all costs for the rest of your career. And of course, on top of that, you've got the testosterone fueled culture which is the culture driving the sense that, well, don't be a pussy and man up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now we have to capitalize on this. And I remind like police leaders all the time, don't shut down this new generation that's coming in. They're very different. They're very different. They're very open to talking with people. They're very open to discussing their feelings and their emotions around others. That stigma isn't there. It's still there, but it's not as bad as it was. It's really weird to see, having come from 30 years plus of being around that environment where you do not talk about this shit. Yeah to see these young cops who are going like, oh man, I felt terrible and blah, blah, blah. And they're just talking about their feelings and their emotions and all these kind of things. It's like, this seems weird, but it's healthy. Yeah. I'm, I, okay, change your viewpoint, Ratcliffe. You know, this is actually okay. This is good. We should have been doing this, yeah. right? And it's interesting to take like a time machine trip. You know, we hear some of these things officers are saying and you're like, all right, let me think about if I said this 10 years ago. Mm. You know, but it's also very promising to show how far our profession has come. 
Recently, I read a, one of our quarterly performance evaluation reviews, and it was from a sergeant who discusses things going on with his platoon, morale, things of that nature. And it said how his officers are so happy and pleased with the fact that we have a mental health program and, and how it's helping them cope with what's going on in 2020. The fact that we're even putting that on paper. Right. You, know, you would have never even documented that before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think this is a great thing. It's great for people in policing. And as a, as a knock-on benefit, it's going to be great for the community. To have police officers who are better able to deal with all these stresses and emotions is a good thing. But especially with the older guys, and it's generally guys, right? Yeah. Who've been around policing 10, 15, 20 years. They're still resistance, right? And they are so influential within shifts, within squads, within platoons, within districts. Is it easy to move the older folk? It's been an incredible challenge with some of the people who've been on the job for a while, or even some of the people who've been on the job. That feels like an understatement. It's yeah. been an incredible <laughs> challenge. Well, it's, 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 <laughs> it's trying to use their experiences to benefit the greater good. They do realize it's, it's a positive. It's just how you elicit that out of them. So we'd have a training session, and I'd ask who in the room knows an officer who died by suicide. Mm. And generally, most of your veteran cops, their hands are up. And then I ask them to tell the class about that person. Not about the suicide, about the person who died by suicide. That must be powerful. Yeah, because now once I go into the whole spiel afterwards about how important officer wellness programming is, they're buying in more. And then our younger officers are seeing, oh, wow, look at that. That, that could be me and my buddy 10 years from now. I can imagine that's kind of lump in the throat kind of stuff, right? It is. It kind of, you can actually see it break through to people. Right. And some of the testimony that I heard from some of these trainings I've done is powerful. And I, I think to myself afterwards, how long have they been holding on to that? Right. You know, and getting buy-in in a process like this and talking about mental health, talking about feelings and the things we generally as a career have been trying to block off is something you have to do very tactfully and you have to be very thoughtful in it, but you also have to make sure you're not doing any harm in the process either. So really you have to, that's why I lean a lot on professionals who are in the mental health industry to vet ideas by them to make sure that I'm not causing problems by what I'm trying to do, what our agency is trying to do for our officers. This is one of the things I found really interesting with the new program that you've initiated, which is that you've been working closely with a psychologist. Yes, we're working with uh, Dr. Jennifer Kelly, who's based uh, right out of Haddonfield, which is not too far from here. And she has a board certification in police and public safety psychology. Uh, so the term cultural competence, you know, you can't understate the importance of cultural competence. She gets policing. So there are, there's a whole certification. There are other people out there who have this certification in police and public safety psychology. psychology. All right, so police departments could find other people in the area who have that skill. Absolutely, yep. Thank oh, you. here we go. Cool. Thank you very much. You got Anything else? Another orange juice? Another tea? I'll take another iced tea, please. And I'll hit you for some coffee in a bit, but not right now. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Bon appetit, amigo. Yeah, bon appetit. And that's what I'm saying to other police departments can find people with this level of skill. And there's so many damn carpetbaggers out there right now for wellness stuff. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? So it's become, it's become such a new thing after the presence of President Obama's commission. The officer wellness was one of the main pillars. Now, apparently everybody's an expert. Mm -hmm. It's scary because programs could do harm. That's something I think is really underappreciated because the, there's that one area that has been evaluated outside of policing but found to be problematic, which is the critical incident stress debriefing. Mm -hmm. There's, never, there's not been any real positive evaluations of it, yet police departments still keep doing it. It's something where the, the research is very mixed on that. Uh, the research, a lot of it doesn't specifically look at law enforcement and critical incidents. It's kind of, there's even research that shows that it could do harm. But it is something that's 
you know, agencies, well, at least we're doing something. Well, that, that's not a, the right approach because you, your something may be actually harming your people. So in our agency for critical incident debriefings, they go to the police psychologist and it's one-on-one. -on -one. We don't do group debriefings. And it's and confidential? It's confidential. It's protected conversation between a licensed uh, mental health professional and the officer who's in there. <clears throat> and the other thing is it's their appointment. They can discuss whatever they're feeling, whatever they want to talk about, whatever they want education or resources on. It's, it's their time. The idea of sending somebody after a critical incident to go and see a psychologist, have you run into resistance with that? We actually haven't because of the fact that we initiated a program last year where every officer from the chief to the newest officer goes and meets with our police psychologist for an hour automatically, annually. I mean, that, that was a real innovation that you started, the idea that just across the board, regardless of your health, your background, regardless of anything that's taken place, even if you're working in an office, right? Everybody, everybody. Everybody goes to see a psychologist Yeah. once a year. Mm -hmm. how, how do people take, I mean, not, some people must have resisted, right? They must have had some concerns. Uh, there really, there weren't too many concerns. It was, it was interesting. We did a very slow and purposeful rollout of the program uh, where we tried to address any concerns during in-service trainings leading up to it for about a year. Um, we talked about it a lot. We talked about... The no, so you really laid the groundwork about what this was going to be like. Oh yeah, there was, there was a lot of foundation that was laid out before we even tackled the institution of, you're going to this. Really, the, we didn't have too many concerns. A couple of people had questions about it and we answered those questions about confidentiality and things like that and all things that our psychologist explains at the beginning of the appointment too. But because of the fact that there's already that familiarity there, which is one of the reasons we wanted this program, is they know the psychologist. They have a relationship with the psychologist already. We don't want our officers going to meet the psychologist for the first time after they've been through something traumatic. I wonder if that's an important part, is to establish the groundwork of normalcy. That this is a normal thing and this is how we do things rather than well, that was a weird incident, and I think you should be sent to a psychologist. I think it is because it, it eliminates any kind of angst or insecurity or anything leading up to that visit where you already know what the office looks like. You already know what sitting there feels like. You already know the psychology. Um, I think most of the anxiety is just the procedural anxiety of what, what is counseling? What is, what is a wellness visit? What is a critical incident stress debriefing? What is this person going to say? Uh, I think a lot more officers have been through therapy than, than they will let on. But I think there's also a, probably a higher number of officers who haven't and don't know what it looks like. And one of the things that stresses officers out a lot is the lack of control. When we're at a visit with a psychologist, we're not in control of that. You know, when, after the critical incident and the dust settles, we're not in control of how we're responding. So I like how you put it. And when I talk about critical incidents, I always say the things you're going to have are normal reactions to an abnormal thing that you went through that you shouldn't have seen. Right. You know, no human beings are wired to see some of the things that we see in this job and acknowledging that and normalizing the fact that we want you to go and have some mental health first aid essentially, uh, I, think, I think it helps remove the stigma so that when there is a big problem, we hope that you're more inclined to pick up the phone and call when it's something going on in your life, whether it's personally, professionally or both. Stigma is exactly the right word for the majority of policing. Just any kind of discussion or thought of treatment or care for somebody around mental health carries with it a stigma because certainly in the United States, and I used to be a firearms officer in the UK, any discussion of mental health came with it, the idea that they were going to take your gun away. Right. Whereas if you think about it, I would sooner somebody was getting mental health treatment and getting better if they're carrying a gun than bottling up some of the shit that people are carrying around with them. Right, absolutely. And I mean, 
brings up two good points. One is fitness for duty examinations, which is what everyone refers to as I'm having my gun taken away or I'm being benched. If you actually look at the percentages there, there's a very low percentage of an officer who's sent for fitness for duty actually having their gun taken away and being relieved permanently from their position. Should it be higher? I think if, if somebody's at a bad place in their life, the purpose is to get them better. So I think, you know, fitness for duty doesn't say, all right, you can go back to work tomorrow. Fitness for duty could say that, but it could also say you need some more counseling, but we could probably get you back there. And you're, you might be benched for the time being, but you're not losing your job. But there's still a lot of misconceptions about that whole process and what they're truly supposed to be used for. I think people see that it also comes with a stain. You know, if you, if you if for any reason you got your, your gun taken away from or you got benched for a while, I think people are worried it's going to have career implications down the line for the rest of their career. And that's still a big part of this of the stigma surrounding mental health that we have to crush. Police officers over-identify with their symbols of authority. Our gun, our badge. Sometimes I feel like police officers, and I've been here too, so I'm not preaching, I'm not up here on a pedestal. We put our, our profession above our above ourselves as a human, and we lose sight of the fact that we're human first doing a police officer's job. And one of the things I try to tell everyone when I teach officer health and wellness is we're all renting our badge. You're, you're, it's just a temporary thing, it's your job. At some point you're gonna have to retire. At some point, God forbid, you may get injured. Uh, but there's a, there's a shelf life on your shield. That is a great way of putting it, renting the badge. Yeah, you're not a cop forever. You're a human being forever, but you're not a cop forever. And I think we put too much effort sometimes on, on focusing on staying on the job and we kind of lose sight of staying a thriving human being, taking care of our family, enjoying life. That notion of stigma is so pervasive. After being with my ex-wife for 20 years, I found out I was getting divorced. And for the first time in my life, I went to counseling and it was incredibly helpful. But I had to overcome that stigma within myself. There was a part of me that was saying a, a sense of going to counseling was an admission of failure. And of course it wasn't, but I felt that sense of stigma right the way from having been in policing since I was in, you know, 17, turning 18 years old. Whereas the reality was it was actually, no, this is like a medical treatment and it will help me get better. They got much better as a result of it. My ex-wife would probably disagree. <laughs> yeah, well, that's their job, right, to disagree. <laughs> I think that is a, a point that we need to shift, and I think some agencies are doing a really good job at it. Others need some work still. For me, the stigma of seeking help for mental health was, was really deep and almost felt culturally ingrained in me. For departments that have a culture that drives that, and we have to bear in mind that a lot of that's masculine culture, and we only have, say, 13% of police departments across the board are women uh, and it's worse than state police they're down to like seven percent of women which is just preposterous yes, yes. so you have this really sort of macho uh, testosterone driven culture how do we overcome that so that we can more normalize the idea that people in an incredibly stressful job can actually get some help with that aspect of it i think by reframing things to allow officers to realize that they need more assistance with things is is brave and that it's a symbol of strength but how do we do that I think we need to increase self-awareness. I think we need to really educate our officers on exploring what's going on in their minds or what's going on in their lives, educating their families on things about what's going on at their jobs, how they can best support their loved one and how their loved one can support them because the uh, police family deals with the stress just as much as we do, if not more in some instances. And that's another aspect of the program that you initiated, which is not just an annual visit to go and see the police psychologist, but you've also got a program that involves the families. 
I presented at ICP 2017 in Philly on officers' families as, as kind of a missing part of this whole officer wellness piece. And so many people came up afterwards, and most of them were family members who were attending the ICP with their loved ones. We're incredibly thankful that, that this is starting to be explored and, and that they feel that they, they've kind of been overlooked and neglected. And it kind of spurred me into thinking, all right, well, what else can we do for them? I started really reflecting back to my time as a kid with a father who's a cop and some of the stress I went through when he was on the, you know, he's still on the job, but when he was working patrol, wondering, was dad going to come home that night? When I woke up in the morning, would dad be there? Was that a common thought when you were growing up? It was, yeah, especially a period of time there in South Jersey. We had a lot of police officers, even from smaller non-urban police departments who were dying in line of duty but being uh, murdered. When was this? This is 95, 96, right around there. So I was about fifth, fifth or sixth grade. That was a rough time. It yeah. was, yeah. That was just after the, the peak and crime was still really high and a lot of violent crime across the U.S., yep. Yep. So I remember that and I remember a couple other incidents of thinking, oh, wow, my dad you know, might not come home today. And my uncle, too, same thing. You know, you worry about them out on the streets. As I thought more about it, I'm like, you know what, there's an opportunity here. You know, one of the things I really wanted to focus in on was let's not leave the families out. So we decided to conduct a family seminar. And the family seminar was offered up for our police officers and their families. Uh, they could bring their spouse, their significant other, they could bring parents, they could bring in-laws, they could bring really whoever they considered their support system. The other thing is, you know, we wanted to make sure we weren't causing stress by having this event. So we had childcare. So the officers could bring their kids to the police station. There was another room in the police station with movies on and games and crowns and coloring books and things like that. And then we were in the, the main training room and they knew their kids were safe and they were in the other room. They were being supervised. We provided dinner. We had it at a time that was convenient after everyone else would have gotten done work. You really made it a whole family day. We did, yeah. And people were, some of them were excited to even see the police station. That was the first time they'd ever been there. I like the fact that you recognize the possibility that a program like this could be harmful. There are so many studies and evaluations and research done on policing and in and around policing that seem dubiously unaware that there is a possibility that programs can be harmful and not just helpful. It's often kind of, is it helpful or did it not work? But there's, it, it's, a, it's a bigger scale than that. Is it helpful? Did it not work? Or was it actually iatrogenic? There we go. Big, that's a fancy word for today. Did it cause harm? So you created this whole kind of family day. And then what did the program that you put together involve? Our police psychologist presented on common themes with family stress, common themes of, that are unique to being a law enforcement family, you know, shift work, missed holidays, missed, missed kids' sporting events, things like that, time management, and, and ways for the family to navigate through that together so that they were at least reducing the stress and anxiety surrounding being a, a police family, um, but also ways to not get so locked up into things like the social media things or the, the questions at parties or the, you know, the avoidance, the enforced overtime, some of the other things that come with it. So some kind of ways to build some more resilience in the family, as opposed to just focusing completely on the officer. We also were able to put in there resources and confidentiality concerns. So if you're the spouse or if you're the uh, partner of an officer and you're noticing these problems, and that's a common, common theme in some of the work I've been doing is, should the family be part of your early intervention system? Right, so that's an interesting question. And I'm sure you've got a whole range of different options there because that puts a whole new onus on the officer to try and make those decisions about how much they want to share with their family, how much they, fa they, they worry that their family can take it uh, and understand some aspects of the job. How was that taken? So <laughs> it was kind of interesting. So we got more pushback on the family nights than we did on going and sitting in front of a police psychologist for an hour. Really? Nothing drastic, nothing incredibly negative, but there were questions. 
you know, there was anecdotal you know, stories afterwards where a spouse would come up to me and say, oh, thanks for putting this on. You know, I was told not to ask questions. Ha, ha, ha. But sure, he was legitimately told not to ask any questions during the presentation. And then obviously you have some officers who are hoping to advance in their careers and they're worried about what their significant others may say that could be looked at as detrimental to the agency. Things that are out of our, our control, but, you know, where the officer thinks, oh, if my spouse says that, they're going to think I'm complaining about the job all the time. You can't really control what your other half is going to say. No, and, and, and again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about the control thing. You know, it's a position we're putting our cops in where they're not in control. Right. And they're not comfortable with that. Really, you recognize the potential harm, so that's important. Yeah. And so, benefits? Benefits are we were able to empower the families, not just the officer now, with the resources. So if you see something going on that's that's out of line for your for your significant other who's an officer, here's how to get a hold of our police psychologist. Here's how to get a hold of the employee assistance program. Here's the confidentiality protections that these programs afford you. So is there an option for family members to come and say, I'm really stressed about the fact that my significant other in this current environment may not come home? Can they get help? Yeah. So, I mean, the beautiful thing is we have a very culturally competent employee assistance program that complements our police psychologists. So we have a couple different options officer can use, officers can use and our chaplains as well. So our employee assistance program, our chaplains, they're available to the spouses. They're available to the kids. They're available to the whole family. That is fantastic. Yeah. And unless you tell the family that, they're never going to find out. Right. Because you give the police officers literature to take home, they're probably, you know, it's like homework. Is it really making it home? Yeah, can we get an electronic signature from your spouse saying they're aware of this, uh, <laughs> these resources that are out there? But some of them, after the fact, that was some of the most rewarding conversation I've had during this whole experience with developing a program. And I got to give our, our chief a shout out, Chief Lou Bordy. He's been incredible with, yes, do research. Yes, let's put these interventions in place. Yes, let's let's do do more than most agencies are doing. Let's explore building this program up. What other resources are available? The IACP, International Association of Chiefs of Police, put out an employee and family wellness guidebook. So we work closely with them to kind of tailor it specifically to our agency's needs. And we included a lot of information in there. We kind of adapted what they have, included information specific to our department in that book. And then we made that available to our families. So I can definitely share a link with that for the IACP's version, and you can edit it for your own particular agency. Okay, great. So I'll put a link to the IACP version up on the website for this podcast. Perfect. which should be at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Perfect. What else is going on the national stage with uh, on, on the wellness officer, safety and wellness side? So there's two major things that are on the horizon. We're going to see an increase in the use of peer support teams and we're going to see an increased focus on retired officers or officers who are getting ready for retirement. The peer support teams. The way I describe peer support teams, it's almost like an air traffic controller. You're having officers who are coming to you for advice or telling you about the issues they're having. And your job generally is to be a good listener and then to refer to resources if needed. So officer has this particular issue, is presenting these things that we've educated the peer support team member on. The officer may say, you know what, you'd be, you'd be, it would be beneficial for you to speak with an employee assistance program or with our police psychologist or a chaplain. Can I facilitate setting that up for you? So the, the theory behind peer support teams is the officers may only feel comfortable talking with somebody who's walked through it. They'd rather talk about an incident that someone else has been in the shoes and can be empathetic with. So we're getting ready to start. We actually have our first meeting tomorrow, a multi-agency peer support team. But the key to all this is, and I caution agencies a lot on this, is you can't have these things in place without having a good foundation of qualified mental health professionals. Cops are supposed to be the experts in everything, but the reality is we all know that police officers are kind of jack of all trades who are kind of acceptable at a bunch of things, but nobody's claiming to be an expert. No, right? and we can't keep pushing more things on the police officer. 
the important thing is having that, which we do at our agency. We have qualified mental health professionals in place. And a qualified mental health professional has to be a part of that team. It has to be integral to that team to make sure it works effectively, make sure the officers, the peer support people aren't doing harm, to make sure the people aren't taking on the role of a counselor or a therapist or a psychologist, and to provide recurring training to make sure they get it. There is always those few people, you know, on every platoon or every shift, you always know that there are those officers who are the same rank as everybody else, but they just carry more weight and influence. They're right. just, they're that kind of natural police, or as the Y would say, natural police. Yep. <laughs> who not only are great on the street, and are, but are respected for their work there, but also just seem to have the right kind of balance of calmness, nothing flusters them. And they're often the people within that platoon or shift that people look up to. They sound like the ideal people to get on board to start opening discussions about better sort of behavioral health, right? Yeah, they're, they're the people we want. They're the peop we want people who are self-aware. We want people who are naturally helpers. But we also want people who are able to come and say, I need a break. You know, I'm taking on too much of other people's problems. I need, I need a break from peer support for a little while. We need that level of self-awareness for these people. Right. So, of course, we need peer support for the peer supporters. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> now we're starting another team with another acronym. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to get promoted over this. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you see the younger police officers coming in now, and they're going to be kind of saying, well, what's the behavioral health support program like? And you can just see these grizzle gets going, the behavioral fucking what? Yeah. And they've even seen it now in some recruiting ads for more progressive agencies. You know, we have a comprehensive officer wellness program. That's awesome. That's that what, that's is what fantastic. Because too many recruiting adverts are just people abseiling out of helicopters. <laughs> right. And I'm sick of seeing stuff, that shit. Stuff I still haven't done yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, who has? Right. There's like four people out of 800,000 who are like, oh, I'm the helicopter <laughs> abseil guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> when have you used that skill set? Well, in training. Yeah, yeah absolutely. For, for the recruiting ad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to see that. I think our profession is changing in the right direction. It's a giant ship to turn around. But it's turned around more rapidly than I expected it to. I really am. And it's kind of been neat to be uh, on this journey, seeing it where a very short time ago we were re rejecting the notion that we had a suicide problem. And now we're trying to get ahead of it and be proactive and actually including our wellness options as part of our recruiting strategy. I think that's huge. I think it's massive. Yeah. It's funny, the noise now. And we were worried about one plane flying over before <laughs> really? another place is packed out. I mean, at least everybody's socially distanced and we're outside. Yeah, exactly. It's a beautiful day out, so. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that's going to affect people's mental health, isn't it, as we get into the winter. So you've just got this COVID-19's not going away. The political situation, regardless of what side of the spectrum you're on, is a complete and utter cluster. You've got probably the lowest public opinion on policing that I've seen in decades. And then on top of that, it's just getting darker and less sunlight, and there seems to be no end to this. And the weather's going to get crap and just it's really all piling up isn't it it really is and resilience will get you so far <laughs> yeah but you need to make sure there's other stuff there too how is your resilience i don't know this guy keeps stabbing me can i think about that in a minute <laughs> exactly well what do you do about the stress you play computer games don't you i do yeah i play uh call of duty um some of those like investigative games and things like that things that get you thinking uh, that's kind of a cool stress reliever for me i mean it's got it's better to have an outlet than to constantly hit an adult beverage, even though my alcohol intake has gone up with COVID-19. Yeah, it absolutely have something, yeah. I'm afraid I've become addicted to World of Warships. I was wondering why I texted the other night, like, what's he playing? Yeah, <laughs> at the moment I'm getting beaten by a 12-year-old in his mum's basement. Thank you very much. And they talk so much crap, don't they? I, I got that new Call of Duty and every time I'd parachute out of the aircraft, 
I'm getting shot. Well, I'm not, I haven't hit the ground yet, and some 12-year-old kid's talking crap to me on there. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought I had some tactical awareness as my battleship gets destroyed by a 12-year-old who humiliates me. This is apparently helping my stress. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're yelling at the TV screen. You're like, yeah, maybe this isn't, isn't the best uh, outlet for me. <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some opposition player completely outsmarts you tactically and then says up on the chat, I've got to go and do my homework. Yeah. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. Now you're wondering, hmm, is police work really the best job for me? <laughs> yeah. Re really is. Just for your convenience, if you have any more coffee, tea, anything like that. Okay, perfect. dessert, I can add that on. All right, thanks Cheers, so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, look at us. We didn't have a drink. Yep, proud of us. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Bill. <laughs> Cheers. was episode 29 of Reducing Crime, recorded in New Jersey in October 2020. As always, transcripts of every episode are available at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, and new episodes are announced on Twitter underscore Reducing Crime. A link to the IACP's Employee and Family Wellness Guide, covering a range of topics that we discussed and more, can also be found at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Just look for this episode. As a character in the classic TV series featuring the theme tune you're listening to, so memorable reminds everyone, let's be careful out there. Be safe, and best of luck. Mm -hmm.